going into this year, I greatly underestimated how my own emotions impacted the team. Like how I was really impacted and influenced how the guys were. When I was excited and jacked up, they were. And they could see I was kind of like shaky and whatnot. They got kind of shaky. So trying to have that even keel demeanor, I really felt like that was important because you always want to be that cool, calm presence for your guys. Even in the heat of battle, we always said, stay the course, right? Like don't get too high, don't get too low. And that goes for coaches as well. Hi, I'm Dan Krikorian. And I'm Patrick Carney, and welcome to Slapping Glass, exploring basketball's best ideas, strategies, and coaches from around the world. Today, we're excited to welcome the head coach of the G League's Capital City Go-Go, Mike Williams. Coach Williams is here today to discuss learnings from his path from student manager to head G League coach, how Capital City became an efficient offensive team despite being a below-average three-point shooting team, and we talk eliminating turnovers and defending speedy guards during the always fun start, sub, or sit. In addition to this podcast, this weekend, members of SG Plus can also view our film room session with Coach Williams called Crunch Time, where we dive into the decision-making, play-calling, timeout discussions, and more of the last three minutes of the Go-Go's last-second victory over Grand Rapids this season. Find out more in this weekend's Sunday morning newsletter. And now, please enjoy our conversation with Coach Mike Williams. Coach, congrats on a great season and thanks for joining us. We're really excited to talk to you today. Thank you. I'm honored. I'm grateful to be here. Big fan of the podcast. And so just excited to be able to share and what you guys do for the basketball community and coaches is awesome. And so thank you all for having me. Appreciate that, Coach. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, Coach. Our pleasure. All right. We want to start with a little bit of your learnings from being a student manager. You're still very young in your coaching career, but you've done such a phenomenal job of taking advantage of an opportunity as a student manager to then grow your career to the point where, you know, now being a G League head coach this year. And so We'll just start more broadly before we dive in about your learnings and takeaways from being a student manager and how it's led to where you are now. I think the biggest thing that I learned from being a manager that I take with me today is just there's no job too small. It doesn't matter if you're the head coach, if you're assistant coach, equipment, front office. If I have to wipe up sweat because a player falls, I'll do that, right? When we're traveling the G League, we don't travel with private planes. We travel commercially through the airports. And so... You know, I'm going to help with the bags. I want to make sure that you know I'm not just worried about myself getting to the plane and all this. I'm going to help with the bags and things like that. Help carry water, help carry food when we're on the road. I think those things are really important. And a lot of that was instilled being a manager where you're doing all the small tasks, right? Where you're filling up Gatorade coolers and you're wiping up sweat. And like my first year as a manager, I didn't sit on the bench. I sat on one of the far baskets and had the mop. When somebody fell, I had to go and run out there. And luckily, nobody ever came in transition to try to run me over, but <laughs> you're on alert, right? And so just those type of things, that mentality of just, you got to do everything. And everything's important as well. There's no task that's not important because everything we do is in pursuit of development and winning. Regardless of the task, it's important and there's value to it. Even if everybody doesn't see it, you know that that thing matters. Absolutely. And with the student manager role, it's obviously a lot of times an entry point into the coaching world. But then 
after that, you've done such a great job of then networking in a way that you've you know moved yourself up different levels. Love to dive in on the networking piece because I know it's a hard part for a lot of people entering the business. So how did you think about making true relationships that led to next opportunities? I was very fortunate at University of Maryland to be around a very good men's program and a very good women's program as well. And my first summer as a manager, one of the women's coaches, he did a lot of player development stuff. And so I would just watch him and be around him. And his name is David Atkins. He ended up getting a job with the Wizards as a director of player development. Well, I still had three or four more years of school left. And so I just stayed in contact with him. And it wasn't something that I tried to force, but it was just very organic and really just seeking to learn, right? Never asking for anything from Coach Atkins, but just can I be around? Can I observe? If I have a question about a drill or something like that, that's what I would do. Fast forward to when I finished as a grad assistant at Maryland, same thing, right? You know, obviously I wanted to work in the NBA, but when I was reaching out to people, one, they didn't know me. Right. I was cold emailing a lot of people and cold calling a lot of people. So a lot of times I just was trying to develop a relationship of learning what it is that you do. What are the challenges? What do you enjoy about it? All those different types of things from a player development standpoint. How do you teach this? Or from a schematic standpoint, how do you teach this coverage or things like that? So just trying to learn, I think, is the best way to go about it. And then from there, you can start to develop a more organic relationship, right? Where you get to know them beyond just the basketball stuff. You get to know people's families and things like that. And over time, you build trust. People usually don't hire people that they don't trust. And so you're trying to develop a real organic relationship. But it starts with, I think, just learning and seeking out knowledge. Mike, looking at when, you know, like you mentioned, learning and as your first couple of years as student manager, you're just kind of sitting watching and in charge of the mop. I guess, how did you take all that you've learned, you observed and being inquisitive? And then when you finally got the chance to get on the court, learning your coaching style. First, it starts with just being yourself. Like instead of trying to be a certain or specific type of coach, try to be genuine to who you are as a person and then let that kind of guide you and how you're going to coach. And so that's kind of what I did. I'm a big note guy. Like I have a bunch of notebooks and things like that. So I was constantly writing down things that I liked, things that I didn't like, things that I thought might work. Now, did all those come to the forefront of my mind when I was hired for this job? No. But I think just keeping track of all those things kind of informed me of how I wanted to be and all accumulated into some type of cohesive thought, or maybe not so cohesive, <laughs> depending <laughs> on who you ask. <laughs> But I think it really comes down to just being true to who you are as a person. Like if you're a calm and mild-mannered person, don't try to be some type of raucous, boisterous coach. I think you got to be true to who you are. Now, there's times where you have to probably change your tone and change your approach a little bit. But over the course of the time, I think, you know, be you. And that's what I tried to do. And there were times this season where I tried that, where you're cursing at guys in the huddle and you're losing your mind. And afterward, like we had a game in Maine, we were getting blasted by like 40. <laughs> this was like our, maybe our sixth game of the year. And I'm going crazy in the huddle. And afterward, I'm looking, I'm like, what did I just do? <laughs> like, it was almost like I just like blacked out almost. It was crazy. I told myself I would never do that again, where you're just losing control. And you can kind of feel like in Maine, they get pretty good crowds. You feel your guys looking at you kind of crazy, but then you kind of feel the fans who are right behind. Like in the G League, everything's intimate, right? And so you feel the fans looking like, what's wrong with this guy? <laughs> right. It wasn't who I was. And I said, I'd never do that again. And I never did it to that level. Mike, interesting, you know, for you being at such a high level in the G League. And I know for yourself, you didn't play in college. And just the process for you of gaining trust with 
players are obviously great players, you know, coming from that student manager role where someone that was a, a former player can jump right in and, you know, maybe relate to the players at your level. But for you, you know, having a different path and coming up, what are ways you've built the connection so they trust and build that bond with you? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that works to my advantage is that I'm basically their generation, right? Everybody that I coached this year was between the age of 20 and 31. So right now I'm 26, I'm right in the middle. And so beyond basketball experiences, we have similar life experiences, right? Similar tastes in music and movies and TV shows and things like that. And plus, like we've grown up watching the same players. So I know I didn't play at their level, but the same basketball experiences that they've seen from the NBA, I've grown up seeing as well. And a lot of the reactions and emotions that are tied to those experiences, we all share. And so that's honestly just a big part of how I'm able to relate to the guys just have similar experiences because we're this virtually the same age. Beyond that, though, you know, I think you know, I kind of alluded to this earlier. I think it's really important to get to know the people before the player. Right. I want to get to know you as a person, where you come from, your family, brother, sister, mom, dad, who raised you, who coached you, what went well for you last season where you played, what didn't go well. Like, I want to know all these things that helps me coach you better and I can tailor my coaching to you as an individual. And that's one of the things like Amber and I, Amber's our GM. You know, when we were preparing for this year, we wanted to make sure that guys knew that we cared about them as people first. And then the basketball stuff will come second. And I hope we did that. You know, we had interviews not too long ago and a number of players relayed that message to us, which they appreciated. But that's the biggest thing. There's always something to talk about. And finding those little moments, like for us in G League is great. We all travel together all the time. Buses, plane rides, just things like, especially those two really are the main ones. There's times where you can just, you know, I saw this, what do you think? Or, hey, you know, tell me about growing up in LA, and, you know, we had guys from California and LA, right? Whatever it is, you know, you can find those little pockets of time, whether it's 15 minutes or, or an hour, and you can get to know a guy really well over the course of a season like that. And so just finding those little pockets of time, I think is so valuable to really connecting with players. And was there any downside or struggle with being one of their peers in their same generation? I wouldn't say there was any downside or struggle in terms of coaching them. I think probably it was more due to my own insecurity, never being in a head coaching role. And like this is the first time in my life where the decision I made during the game actually impacted the game, right? Or I did player development and video and, you know, what I think and say doesn't really impact the game in the moment, right? So I think just my own insecurity and trying to get my bearings and my footings and trying to understand, okay, this will work in the game, this won't work in the game, or even in practice. I think that was probably the biggest challenge in trying to get over that. Mike? No spoiler alert, we might get back to your first year somewhere in another segment here on the show. So we don't want to give it away there. But my last question for you on this is a little bit just back to the networking piece and the growth piece. And I'm sure you've been to Final Fours and to NBA Summer Leagues and whatnot as a student manager. And when you were coming up, just advice for younger coaches trying to go to these events and actually trying to make true relationships, things that maybe work for you that they can think about. I think the biggest thing is know who you're talking to. I know there's a lot of people at these events, but try to come up with a plan and get to know a little bit of background information about these people so that there's something to connect on. Some people are gifted with just being able to talk to anybody. I'm not really one of those people. I need to probably do a little bit of research and background information on where this person's been, where they've coached. And maybe through that information, you find a connecting point. So try to come up with a plan on who you want to meet. And then once you figure that out, 
okay, how can I connect with this person? Because I think just kind of going at it randomly, some people can do that. Like I have a good buddy who works for Phoenix Suns and he can do that. He can talk to anybody in the world. It's just easy for him. For me, I'm like this. Yeah, I think just try to come up with some type of plan on who you want to meet, get to know a little bit about them. And then when you run into them, you know, try to start an organic conversation with that information that you found in mind. Hey, coaches, we'd like to take a quick break to tell you about today's sponsor, Instat. They have been hands down the biggest resource we've used in generating our content. Their expansive database of over 30,000 players and 7,000 teams gives us the access we need to scout notice trends, and learn from some of the best coaches in the game today. So join coaches of all levels who are using Instat to better prepare for their opponents, self-scout, and develop their players. By going to instatsport.com form and entering the promo code SGPOD, coaches can receive one free month of Instat Scout and 10% off their subscription. That's SGPOD at instatsport.com form. Thanks again to Instat for their support. And now back to our conversation. Coach, we want to transition now onto the court. And you had a great first season as a head coach. And one of the things that on the court you guys were really good at is you were highly efficient, one of the best efficient-wise offensive teams. But the caveat was you were one of the least efficient three-point shooting teams in the G League this year. And it's just a really interesting stat and we'd love to dive into that with you a little bit more and so i guess we'll start broadly there on your thoughts on creating an offense around a team that didn't have you know one of the top three-point shooting teams in the g league this year yeah it was very unique (laughs) and we really didn't get going as a team offensively until probably early february of the year and so we had already played 20 plus games to that point and i think one of the biggest things that changed for us is our emphasis on playing in transition we had a much easier time scoring the ball versus defenses that weren't set. So in the G League, the season is broken up this year into two phases, right? You have the showcase, right, which is like the first 14 games, and then you have the regular season, which is the remainder of the season in the playoffs. And I believe in the showcase, we were like maybe in the bottom five teams in transition, and then we ended up finishing like fifth in the league in fast break points. And I think that was the biggest thing, just trying to play fast before the defense can get set so we don't have to worry about teams going under and playing in drops and all this other stuff. When we emphasize playing in transition and playing fast, we want to do it through the kick ahead. We always say like the ball moves faster in the air than on the dribble, right? Throw that thing ahead. Even if it doesn't seem like there's an advantage, there's going to be something that we can create that's good by just kicking the ball ahead and just throwing it up the floor and trying to get up fast. And then we're also fortunate to have two very reliable bigs. Greg Monroe, who played in the league for nine, 10 years, and then Jaime Echenique, who was a rookie this year in the G League, but he had played over in Spain last year. They were really reliable. They had short hands. They could finish with both hands around the rim. They had an array of moves. And so when we didn't have an early kick ahead and we just pushed it with pace, those guys would pick a side. And a lot of times we just threw it into them early on the block. And those guys could go to work. And there weren't many teams who could match up with them. Maybe a team had one big in their starting lineup who could match up, but very rarely did they have two bigs who could match with seven-footers who scored their back to the basket. That was the biggest thing, honestly, is just playing in transition. And then there was some more stuff like in the half court with screening angles and DHL angles and cutting that we can dive into. I'd love to. Sure. Oh, yeah. You know, 
teams were going, they were going under so far on our DHOs. We relied on DHOs a little bit more than most teams. We were okay in pick and roll, but we weren't great. And so earlier in the year, teams were going under because our DHOs were so high. Like we were almost above the three-point line or maybe one step below. Fast forward a couple of months, we started getting our DHOs maybe like a step or two above the elbow. And that really, really helped us. Because one, even if a guy went under, he was so far down that we could kind of win that race and beat him to the spot. Or now we're sending that low rescreen, right? Almost like into a, a step up or an angle pick and roll. And we can kind of operate from that area. And so I think, you know, we cleaned up our angles and our pick and rolls and really try to force guys to go over. But if they didn't, we had solutions to fight that. Mike, playing through the post, how did you look to create space for your post players in terms of was it cutting? Was it spacing? Was it screening? What were you doing with the perimeter? And what were you doing with your other big? We never played both bigs together. There was only one of them on the floor. The only rule we really had was for the post entry, whoever that passer was, if you were basically Cassius Winston or Jordan Shackle, who are two best shooters, you would stay. If you weren't so much of a shooter, you would cut and get out to the opposite side. And that way, it was very simple for our guys, but it gave Jaime and it gave Greg space to operate down there. And a lot of times, most teams were double teaming off the catch. And so we had some really great cutters on our team who would just cut as soon as they threw it in and we got wide open layups. That's kind of how we taught the spacing of it. Now, for those other two guys, Cassius and Jordan, go ahead and double team off you want. Those guys can't shoot. I know as a team, we didn't shoot very well, but those guys were really reliable shooters for us. And so they just stayed put and we got some good threes off of that. On the weak side, if you had your shooter enter the ball, were you then waiting to cut off to see who they would double? Or was it the 45 guy go every time? Or were you leaving it read-based for your guys? Most of it was read-based, but there were a couple of games where we knew who they were going to double team off of. From that perspective, we were able to just cut right behind the double team and we got layups off of that. Now, if we didn't really know, then it was just random. Like if a guy turned his head, you know, we knew guys could go and get layups like that. The other important thing about that Let's say we had a non-shooter throwing the ball into the post and one of our shooters is on the backside. It was really important for us to make sure that shooter got into the vision of the post passer, right? A lot of times, like early in the year, our best shooters, they would just kind of stay deep corner and there's no way our big could get them the ball. And so we started emphasizing a little bit more, get into the vision of the passer. That really opened up some kind of cross-court threes and also some opportunities to attack closeouts. Because now the biz could see that backside and it's kind of opened up everything else for us. And with the timing of the cuts, what do you tell them maybe not to cut if you saw the big was going to work? If our bigs had two feet in the paint, we just scored. Like, I don't care if you're coming to double team or not, go ahead and put the ball in the hole. Now, if it's a little bit further out and you can tell the big was kind of waiting, we can cut immediately. But if you already see the big kind of go into his back down, it's probably best to just give it a little bit of time and then go to make sure that we're not kind of clogging things up for him. Coach, you'll forgive me for a second. I'm a bit of a DHO fanboy. Uh, Pat knows this about <laughs> yeah. me. I might go down a rabbit hole for a quick second here with you on the DHOs. The first thing is something interesting you said at the top of this segment was that you figured out that you weren't a great pick and roll team. And so you decided to utilize the DHO more. And that's something I know Pat and I've always talked about is just the DHO is a, a weapon that it gets you into similar pick and roll looks or decisions, but without having to actually run a pick and roll. I'm wondering about your steps to becoming more of a DHO team. Like, did you know early you wanted to run a lot or did you figure out slowly the pick and roll was not as effective and you decided to implement them more? A lot of our offense in the G League, you got to remember, and even the defensive concepts are mirroring the Wizards or mirroring the NBA parent team. And so 
in the beginning, yeah, we were running a lot of things similar to the Wizards and they were ending pick and rolls. And kind of as we kind of got our bearings and our footings and secure in those things, we started to add more dribble handoffs, right? And a lot of times it would be a dribble handoff into a side pick and roll from the five man, right? So now we're going side to side. The guard, it's like a guard to guard dribble handoff into a side pick and roll to get the defense moving. Or it's like an empty corner DHO. We would call it an open side. And now the biggest DHO to a guard coming out of the corner like that. And we added a number of plays like that to get that type of action. But it didn't just come immediately. It took time for us to kind of understand, one, who are our ball handlers and our creators in these type of actions? And then where are they best suited to attack and make plays for our team? Okay. So you also said an adjustment you made or things you got better at were that in the beginning of the season, the DHOs were higher and people were just easily able to go under. How did you get them lower? Was it a, a lower catch to start or was it something you taught your bigs to dribble under? How did you get them in a better spot? The biggest thing was getting the big to catch the ball lower and actually telling the guard to wait for the big to get set. Everybody in the NBA runs it some type of delay, right? And then early in the year, our guards were giving the ball to the big almost at half court where they really weren't able to operate. So we just told the guards, slow down, let the big straddle the three-point line and then throw it to them. And then the big can dribble down inside the three-point line to get a good angle. That was probably the first thing that really, really helped us when we were running our delay stuff. And then I alluded to kind of the dribble handoff into a side pick and roll. That one, the first thing that was important was for the guard who was handing off the ball to kind of dribble more downhill at the guy's defender, right? Instead of just staying wide and above the three-point line, dribble a little bit more downhill. And then the big, as he's coming to clean up on that last side pick and roll, now can get a little bit lower toward the elbow and set that screen to hopefully force the guy over the top. And if not, you know, you have space to race the under. We also got to a lot of, I know we're talking about DHLs here. One thing that helps versus these unders is empty corner pick and rolls where the ball gets below the break, almost to the corner, and then you come back off. And the reason it was so good for us is because our guards were able to get actually a step inside the three-point line to wait for the screen. And then nobody ever blitzed these empty corner pick and rolls on us. And so teams were kind of, either in drops or retreating and our guards were just able to feast getting to the paint like that. Because even if you go under a pick and roll that's below the break, you still should be able to get a paint touch. When you get that paint touch, you can still collapse the defense and spray out for threes and opportunities to attack closeout. Coach, staying on that, getting below the free throw line pick and rolls, do you think that was unique to your team in terms of that they wouldn't blitz you because you were kind of using your weakness against them? Because I think it's always interesting or coaches are worried that if they put the pick and roll so deep and you're kind of backed up against the sideline that teams will just blitz it and blow it up and then your guards in trouble i don't know if it was unique to our team i misspoke i should have said below the break not below the free throw line i'm sorry okay um, okay but a lot of times we would get to it out of like a pistol look right so we have a guard who was ahead and he would kind of set a step up right either roll it or come off the flare doesn't matter but if the guard's not going to pass the ball to the initial screener, now your job is to get below the break, get that thing low. The reason probably it was so hard to blitz it is because now the five minutes come almost from the top of the key all the way down to the corner. So there's, there's a lot of movement for a five man to chase your man and then blitz it is just really, really tough and difficult. And even if you try to blitz it, you're probably going to open yourself up to a split or being able to kind of go around him. Okay. Mm-hmm. Going to the empty side DHO, looking at the guard, the man who's receiving the DHO, What do you want him in terms of setting up or his angle? Because I would imagine if if he maybe goes too low, then he could be taking a DHO that takes him to the 
half court line. Right. You know, so what are you telling the guard on that empty side who's going to receive the when to one the timing, how to set up and everything? On our timing on those, we actually wanted our guard to go a little bit early to catch their defender a little bit by surprise. A lot of times the defender of that guy is kind of standing straight up and he's kind of a little bit lackadaisical. And so we told our guards to go a little bit early out of the corner to catch him slipping. A lot of times with players, their initial reaction when they're late, at least we experienced this, was actually to go over the screen, even if they weren't supposed to. They were trying to go so hard to blow it up and they probably should have been going under. They're just so behind the play and then you're trailing a guy that you probably shouldn't be trailing. And so we told them to go a little bit early. And then if we went early and they went under, it's okay. Just take a dribble, be patient. And then you now went to the rescreen. Let me just play off of that. That was kind of how we taught it. Now, there were times where it was one of our shooters coming out of the corner. And so it wasn't as important to go early. It was probably more important to kind of walk into the guy's body and then come off so that maybe you could come off the DHL for a shot. But for most of our guys, just go ahead and fly off that thing. And then if they go under, still try to beat it. If you can't beat it, now get ready for the rescreen. And the other thing with that, you know, just to add, there's a lot of teams in the G League who really heavily help at the nail. And they're almost making a bet that you're not going to make that simple advance pass like to the slot or to the plane. So that was something that was really effective for us. Like we would just come off that thing and just throw it to the opposite side. If it was kind of three in a row, like most teams do, you cut the middle guy and you can kind of play on the backside like that. So just making that simple advance pass, even if they're going under, that usually got something good for our offense. Mike, my last on this DHO stuff is you mentioned a couple of times about the rescreen on the under. And I'm wondering the technique or the things you would tell the big on the under rescreen. So do you want them to roll into the guy going under? Do you want them sprinting out or what, could they pop and play? Like what were the options they had on after the rescreen? It was kind of just you guys just figure it out. I didn't really need to give the guy specific rules as to what to do after the rescreen. For our bigs, neither of our bigs were shooting threats from the perimeter. So they weren't popping. They were rolling hard every time. I think the biggest thing was the angle of the rescreen. Like a lot of times, bigs will rescreen and they're just so, they're almost like parallel to the sideline. But it's just easy to go under again. So we made sure to tell our bigs once you turn around, make sure that you get underneath so that you can force that guy over the top again. And a lot of times we were trying to get the bigs to do, sometimes they did it, sometimes they didn't, but we wanted that top foot to kind of swing low. That makes sense. Yeah. So yeah. You can t- turn around and you can force that guy over the top. Okay. Instead of kind of doing like a full pirouette or spin, which kind of waste movement. And then you still end up in the same position that you started in. So just kind of swing the top leg around, get underneath and the finale would just play. Okay. And the guard, after they receive the handoff and the defender goes under, and the big is pivoting to set the rescreen. Do you want the guard to take kind of like a pop back or a backup dribble or set their man up again? Or, you know, sometimes the struggle, just person I've had in teaching the rescreen is it kind of just turns into a mush play where people are just not really screening and nothing really good happens. So what would you tell the guard on the rescreen? We wanted our guard to give the big a chance to actually get a good angle. Okay. It's kind of like we were saying with the mush, like they just come off and rip that thing back to the baseline and the big is still turned around with their backs to the ball. Like they have no <laughs> idea what's going on. Right. <laughs> and so just give it a sec. You don't have to use your dribble. If you want to take, probably take one just to slow down. But then now once that screen is there, now we can kind of fly off and play with pace in the next part of the play. Thanks coach. You've scratched my DHO itch. <laughs> Pat, right. go ahead. Coach, your use of cutting, especially if let's say you have your shooter involved in an action. So maybe you you don't have enough spacing or you don't have guys that can just space by standing. 
I guess for your cuts, rule-based in terms of, like you said, if you're the middle guy in that third, you're going to cut, or how much was it also then read-based and also guys not cutting over each other? So that was really the only rule that we had, the three-in-a-row middle cut. We were fortunate to actually have a probably three or four guys who were naturally good cutters who could read it, so we didn't really need the rules. What you mentioned, though, we did run into a lot of times having double cutters over top of each other, and that kind of messed up our spacing. You know, it's a hard thing to coach because you don't want to take away somebody's intuition and instinct of when to go. But it was more so just reading who actually is going to be able to create an advantage for our team. It's not something I can just say, like, if this guy and this guy are on the corner in the wing, like, this guy should cut and this guy couldn't. It was more so you guys got to kind of communicate this and have this feel. And that, that just came from practicing and playing. It's a really hard thing, especially at this level, to just say this guy's going to cut every single time because sometimes he doesn't have the advantage. One of the things that kind of helped we started getting guys to screen in their own man on the backside. Uh-huh. And so that would kind of alleviate us. So we'd have one guy cut and one guy screen in so that if there was a shooter that was a little bit higher, he'd kind of feel behind the guy screening. And we actually were able to get to that almost like a, a random hammer screen. And we were able to get to that a couple of times just about feeling and showing the guys clips of, okay, this is when you should cut. This is where you can screen in. A lot of it was just film-based and showing the guys what the options were. In terms of, like you said, maybe there were two cutters, they'd have to kind of distinguish who has the better advantage. What do you mean by that? Was it who was more helping or who had lost complete vision or the matchup was better? It's more so whose man was helping a little bit more or overhelping. If the guy in the wing, if this man was really, really pulled in, okay, maybe it makes sense for that guy to cut. Now, one thing that was important for us, like when you cut, don't cut just to catch the ball cut to create an advantage for our team. So whoever cut, you got to cut with pace and purpose to create confusion, right? Because obviously your man's probably not going to see you and somebody else is. So you're going to pull most likely two defenders with you on the cut. Does that make sense? I hope that answers yeah, 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 yeah. But it was more so just kind of like, it's a feel. I feel like there's some things that you can't overcoach. And for us, I feel like that was one of those things. We forced our guys to kind of have conversations about it. It's okay, cut, what do you see? And that kind of alleviated a lot of the issues with our double cutters. Coach, just to kind of recap a little bit with creating great offense when you don't have a lot of three-point shooting, you talked about transition. We talked about DHOs and dealing with unders and cutting. The last thing I want to ask you about is just shot selection. You know, if you have a team that you know isn't a high percentage three-point shooting team, how many threes do you still want them to take? What were the conversations like about maybe guys that were suspect shooters if you still want them to take it? What was that like within the locker room? We never had a conversation about how many threes we should take. We had more conversations about selling for mid-range. <laughs> <laughs> we had guys who weren't good mid-range shooters taking like three or four a game early on in the year. And we kind of had to nip that in the bud because we were just settling. And a lot of times defenders were going under and they were taking that shot when they could have just got to the rim or made a simple advance pass for a better look. And so we never put a number like, hey, we need to take 33, less than 33s or take 35 threes. It was never like that. It was more so just, if you're open, shoot the ball, shoot the ball with confidence. And if you're not feeling the shot, shoot it, drive it, or move it. Right? Make a quick decision. We call it a .5 mentality, like most people. Make a quick decision with what you're going to do with the ball. There were games where we made a decent number of threes, or at least we shot a decent percentage, right? And so I didn't want to limit the guy's ability to shoot. It was more so just an open three is a good shot for our team. We weren't a great percentage, but that was a good shot for our team. The mid-range, it wasn't a good shot for our team. Most of the time, because we were just settling for it, not because it was like the best shot available. With shot selection and maybe playing fast and transition, were there shots that you felt you guys you settled for? Were you still willing to take, you know, open corner threes or was it only certain players 
have like the green light to pull a quick three in transition? In transition, we didn't really have a ton of shot selection issues. And the one thing that we we're fortunate to have were players who were pretty self-aware of their strengths. In the G League, you get a mix of a little bit of everything. <laughs> we were very fortunate to have a group who understood, you know, we always said, where's your money? Mm-hmm. A lot of guys, money isn't shooting transition threes off the bounce. But if you're flying down the court, you can take one or two dribbles and get to the rim and either score or make a play for somebody else. That's a great play for you. And so we had guys who understood that. And when we told them, this is probably what's better for you, which will help you. Like at the end of the day in the G League, you got to tie it back to what will help you get to the next level, right? That's what everybody's there for. And so when we made that very clear, right, this will help you get to the next level. Then the guys, they kind of just fell in line with that. And it wasn't anything malicious or personal. It was just based off of what we see and what you do well and what you don't do well. This is probably a better look for you. Now, will we work on those things? Yes. But in the game, you got to know time and score, time and place. Coach, this has been fantastic so far. Thanks for all your thoughts on all that. We want to transition now into a segment we call Start, Sub, or Sit. For those maybe listening for the first time, you have not heard any of these. We're going to give you three topics, ask you to start one, ask you to sub one, and ask you to sit one on the bench, and then we'll discuss from there. So, Coach, if you're ready, we'll dive in. Let's do it. Okay. Coach, this first Start, Sub, or Sit has to do with your first year head coaching experience. This is going to be the hardest things to manage for you as a first-year head coach. Start, sober, sit, your time, decision-making, or your own emotions as a first-year head coach. Wow. I would probably start my own emotions. Okay. I would sub my decision-making, and then I would probably sit my time. I just felt like I was able to manage my time pretty well, and I didn't have too many issues with it. But going into this year... I greatly underestimated how my own emotions impacted the team. Like how I was really impacted and influenced how the guys were. I didn't quite understand that until probably halfway through the year. Like when I was excited and jacked up, they were. And they could see I was kind of like shaky and whatnot. They got kind of shaky. So trying to just have that even keeled demeanor, you know, I really felt like that was important because you always want to be that cool, calm presence for your guys. Even in the heat of battle, we always said, stay the course, right? Like don't get too high, don't get too low. And that goes for coaches as well. So just trying to manage my own emotions. I thought that was really important. And then, you know, decision-making that just came with time. And I was really fortunate to have a great staff. They were tremendous and they're due a lot of credit for our success. They honestly coached me through a lot of situations. All of our staff had more basketball experience than I did. All my assistant coaches were older than I am. The closest in age was like five or six years older than me. And so their experience, I was able to lean on them and just ask them like, okay, what would you do here? What would you do different? Now, of course, like we're all watching the game and I have my own thoughts, but it was just great to hear what they thought. And it got better over time, calling timeouts, making substitutions, making in-game adjustments. All those things got better with this time and reps. And there's really no way to replicate it besides just doing it. Staying with the staff as a first year head coach, what was, I wouldn't say the hardest, but yeah, just managing a staff and how you use the staff. And like you said, I guess, what were the growing pains you went through at the start of the season? You know, well, I was fortunate for one of our assistants. I had knew him prior, David Noel. He was on the previous GoGo staff. And so I had known him before, but my other two assistants, they were new to me. Now they both came recommended to me by people that I trust, which helped, but a lot of us just getting to know each other. No, I probably put them through hell because there's a lot of things that I just didn't have an exact answer for how I wanted them to be done. Yeah. I was very fortunate to be in the G League because you have the opportunity to figure those things out. 
they were really patient with me, which I greatly appreciate. So just kind of figuring out what they need, what's important for them, because they're trying to grow too. And they're trying to make that next step. So I always had it in my mind, what do they need? What do they want to accomplish? And how can I help that? And then they were trying to figure me out as well. And we found a really nice rhythm as we just got to know each other better. Coach, I want to ask you first about your sit, which is time. You said in your answer that you actually felt like you, for the most part, managed your time pretty well as a first-year head coach. And I'm just wondering how you did that and how you were able to segment your day and your thoughts and practice and games so that you felt like you were managing your time efficiently? Yeah, for me, it was just sticking to my routine. I had a fairly set routine for game days, for practice days, even for off days. I'd get up pretty early in the morning and work out and that kind of set the tone for the day. And then I would end up, you know, watching my film and get ready for practice. And then we'd have our coaches meeting pretty much at the same time every practice day. And so those just falling into the routine made it easy for me. Now on the game days, it took me a little bit of time to figure out exactly how I wanted to structure it. But then once I got it, it was easy and I didn't have to deviate or fall from it. And then based off of our start time, right, for seven o'clock or three o'clock or one o'clock, then I would just kind of align that with whatever the start time was. I think just having a very clear routine just helped me organize the day. So I knew at 12 o'clock on a game day, I'm leaving the facility, I'm going to go home and then I'm going to come back at three o'clock or three thirty and then get back to it. That just really helped me. And your start, your own emotions. And you mentioned how, you know, halfway through the year, you started to really figure out how that could affect the overall group. I'm just wondering how you worked through that. If there was people you talked to, coaching mentors or things you did to help your own self manage and get better at that as the season wore on. Part of it was just kind of my own self-reflections. I'm big into trying to reflect on how you're doing instead of blaming other people or other things for why things are happening. I try to look inward first. And then we're very fortunate at the Wizards to have four former G League head coaches on the staff, right? Between Joseph Blair, Mike Miller, Pat Delaney, and Ryan Richmond. I worked on Ryan Richmond's staff when he was the go-go head coach. And he used to always tell me, like, when you get this job, self-regulation is really important. And I didn't really understand it until this year. So just to be able to lean on them and then also just to observe, I went to quite a few NBA games. It was very easy for us because we're in the same city. And just to watch the other head coaches in the NBA and their demeanors and how they carry themselves, it really, really helped me figure out what would work. How did you find the moments when you needed to be emotional with your guys and you needed to get on them or you needed to be fiery? What was that balancing act like? It's still a work in progress. So I don't have it all figured out. You can just tell when your team is flat and they don't have any use. You kind of just got to light into them. That's kind of what happened in our final game versus 905 in the playoffs. We were down 18 in the second quarter. We just didn't have it. We were just playing soft and scared and we didn't have any juice. I think it's also a little bit overstated to say that because I yelled at them, they started playing better. Like the guys know when they're not playing well. But I think that little bit of extra fire from the coach and telling the guys, like, come on, let's go. We got to be us and play our style of basketball and be assertive and aggressive and all those things. I think it helps. Going into halftime of that game, we ended up being up three. So it was a 21-point swing in about nine and a half minutes. So I think it's a little overstated how much how much it impacted the game. <laughs> I like yeah. think I had a little, a, little, yeah. <laughs> a little bit of spark to him. What was, oh man, I don't, I don't think harder is the right word, but a pregame speech or a halftime speech? What was your, <laughs> <laughs> as a first-year head coach? Honestly, the pregame speech was harder for me. Okay. Kind of like, <laughs> I mean, I'll never forget. I was talking to one of our assistants in Mufan, Udofia, and I was telling him like, man, like, I just don't know if that was a good speech. And he's like, Mike, 
you're not Eric Thomas. Like, <laughs> you're, not, <laughs> you're not a motivational speaker. You got to be you. And uh, <laughs> again, I was like, man, like, how do I get these guys rolling and motivated and fired up to play? I was trying to use all these quotes in the pre. I was like, man, I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm going to make it very clear what we need to do, execute our game plan and how we need to be throughout the game. And maybe there's a little bit of difference here and there. It wasn't the same speech every time, but I thought just keeping that consistent helped me. During halftime, it was easy because you had the game to talk about. You know what's happening in the game and we're fortunate enough to have film so we can watch a little bit of film before we go talk to the guys so we know exactly what's going on. That was a lot easier, but pregame, I was like, man. (laughs) That was a lot harder. That was was a lot harder. (laughs) Yeah. Hey, coaches. This segment of Start, Sub, or Sit is brought to you by our friends at Practice Planner Live. Practice Planner Live has combined all the components of effective, efficient, and time-saving practice planning into one easy-to-use platform, saving your most valuable resource as a coach, time. Ditch the Word docs and the scribbled legal pads for a simple point-and-click experience to build your drill directory, collaborate with your staff, and create clean, customized, and shareable practice plans in minutes. With over 75,000 practice plans created at the professional, collegiate, high school, AAU, and youth levels, Practice Planner Live is proven to raise the level of organization and effectiveness of any program. Listeners of the podcast can visit practiceplannerlive.com and register for a free 21-day trial and enter the promo code SGPOD to get 10% off your subscription. Thanks for listening. And now back to our conversation. We'll keep it moving here. Our next start subset for you, coach, it's called hard to defend. And so I'm going to give you three physical characteristics and just what was the hardest to defend when you couldn't match up with it. You didn't have anyone that could match up with this physical characteristic. So was it speed? They just had a point guard. It was just faster than everyone. Size in terms of a big man. Or just athleticism, someone who was just going to be around the rim, you just couldn't match in terms of them being on the perimeter and just causing havoc. I would probably start athleticism. I would sub speed and then I would probably sit the size. The reason I would probably start the athleticism was because there are a couple of times where we had a really hard time keeping some big athletic wings. They could just jump and kind of go through you and still finish through contact. We had a really hard time. We weren't the biggest team. We had decent size, but we weren't the biggest teams. And there were teams who had six, seven, six, eight, six, nine wings with ball skills that we had a really hard time defending. They were just super athletic and they could kind of just get to their spots. And they had such great length, right? So they make like a Euro step finish and they're like at the dots and then they stretch their arm out <laughs> and they're at the rim. Can't teach that. And so it's really hard to defend. To kind of thwart that and counter that, we tried to really be heavy in the gaps first, those guys. And kind of how we talked about earlier, making that bet that teams will make that pass out. Like, just show bodies. I'm sure you guys are watching the playoffs right now. There's so many teams, like you watch Brooklyn and Boston, and Boston's helping crazy off of Bruce Brown, right? Yeah. <laughs> They're just sitting there. They're not really even guarding him. And I'm not saying to that extreme or that level, but just showing presence. Like, we always just say, Make it look like it's one-on-five, not one-on-one. And make sure that offensive guys see bodies so that it's really hard for them to go anywhere. In terms of the sub, the speed, the speed wasn't as much of an issue for us. And 
a lot of times with the speedy guards, we just made our pick and roll coverage more aggressive. Our base coverage was more so at the level anyway. And so just being aggressive and not letting them get downhill was better for us. We had counters for that. We weren't going to play in drops versus a guy like Cat Barber from College Park. He's just too fast, too crafty with the ball, too good of a mid-range shooter. We just be aggressive. Most guards are going to retreat with the ball. Like they're very, there's some, but there's not a lot of guards who can make all the passes versus an aggressive pick and roll coverage, whether it's over the top to the big or pocket pass to the big or over the top to the backside. So just being a little bit more aggressive versus the speedy guys really helped us. And then with the size, like we had size. <laughs> and so more so teams were trying to figure out how to go against our seven. We had two seven footers and our four man is 6'10". <laughs> and so we didn't really have that issue. It was more so how our team is going to match up with us. And it was interesting. Like we were a pretty good transition defense team, even without the most athletic vertical spacing bigs, right? Like we didn't have bigs who were just jumping out of the gym. I'm not going to say they were planted on the floor, but <laughs> they weren't jumping very high. But they were really good at walling up and showing verticality at the rim. And so it really helped us. Coach, my follow-up is with the speedy guards and being more aggressive in the pick and roll, were you aggressive until they get off the ball? Or just like you said, just until they back them up? And if it's so you back them up, then I guess, how do you want the big to retreat? And how do you want the guard to reconnect so he doesn't just wait till he backs up and then blows by him and your guard's just trying to backpedal? The first thing, like when we pursue in an aggressive pick and roll coverage, we want to have active high hands. You know, one of the terms I got from Ryan Pannone, he also talks about contesting passes, right? So we wanted our guard and our big to contest whatever pass we're going to make with high hands. And a lot of times having those high hands just deterred them from ever passing the ball. The second part of that, it was imperative for our guard who was pursuing the ball to call square when he could get back in front. And that alleviated a lot of confusion. Like the big, obviously if the guard picked it up, the big could leave and recover back to his man. We call it square, right? So once that guard calls square, 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 and I'm back, now the big is signaled to go, right? Now, hopefully you don't have a guard who thinks he's back and he's not. We didn't have that issue. But a lot of it was just based off the communication between those two players, letting the big know that I'm back so he didn't have to stay too long and get extended, right? Because that was probably one of the worst things that happened to us. Like our guard would just pursue, but then kind of just lazily pursue. And then the ball handler would get around the big because the guard's not fighting back. So just that communication of fighting back to, we call it fighting back to square was important for us. You know, one of the things I know you guys were good at this year was protecting the rim, two point field goal percentage. And, you know, you talked about your size a little bit, but was there anything else that you worked on or that was a, I guess, a fundamental philosophy on the defensive end to protect the rim? Kind of what we talked about earlier about being in the gaps. I think that was probably the most important thing. And we were a no paint team, not so much no middle or anything like that, but no paint. And so we've worked a lot on in our one-on-no drills and our two-on-two, three-on-three, worked a lot on containing the ball and making ball handlers take kind of roundabout flat drives to the rim versus direct line drives, which there's really no defense for. And so that was a big emphasis for us, just being the gaps. And again, you can hear gaps, 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 gaps. So that our guys knew to shrink the floor so they didn't even get in there. If they did get in there, you had the bigs who could contest with verticality and they weren't necessarily blocking a lot of shots, but they altered a lot of shots at the rim and we could come in there and get the rebounds. Those are the biggest things. And then I would also say we had a couple of different switching coverages that we use and a lot of teams struggled to find any flow or rhythm versus switching. A lot of times they would just kind of back the ball out and start to ISO. Like some teams just play more selfishly than others. And so we were able to use that to our advantage and kind of promote them to play that isolation ball with our switching. 
Coach, just with the no paint and being in the gaps, is that gap help? If there is a drive and you know he's not able to square him off or cut him off, is the help coming immediately from the gap? Is the gap more of a, a stunt and show and then the guy behind him is going to help? How are you rotating around a no paint penetration? The ball is going toward the middle of the floor. We want that help guy, that nail defender to be in early, right? We, we always say no two-way closeouts. So they should already be there and make it look like there's nowhere for that guy to go. If he's going and he picks up the ball and is about to pass, now we're going to start fanning out and we say early high hand closeout. And we're probably going to have to scramble from there. There's going to be some rotations, right? Kind of like in the slots and the baseline. It's kind of your traditional shell principles. We're helping from the low man opposite of the ball. But you also got to read it. And I think that's one of the hardest things, especially at our level for young players to read is when the ball is contained and when they actually got to go over and help. It was something that we struggled with early on, just getting our guys to understand if the ball is contained, but it's going toward the baseline, you don't have to pull all the way over outside of the lane. You can start to fan back out because you're just overhelping. And overhelping, it kills you. And so that was one of the things that we had to kind of recognize. But we wanted to be in early enough so that if that guy was beat, then we could be there and impact the ball with some type of force and some type of presence to help us, you know, get a stop. All right, coach, our last start sober sit for you before we let you off the hot seat here. So this has to do with eliminating turnovers in the half court. Okay. So your start would be, this is the most important. And let's say, you know, it's, you're going into practice and you're trying to work on ways to stop turning the ball over so much. So start sober sit spacing, better spacing offensively the system you're running. So less like you talk about less pick and roll based or something else you're running system wise to help eliminate turnovers or decision making, you know, actually just working on the decisions made within whatever system that you run. So start sober, sit, eliminating turnovers. I would start decision making. I would sub probably spacing and then sit probably the system, especially in the G League and in the NBA. Pretty much every team is running the same stuff. So you have good examples of what works and what doesn't work. That's just going to take time for players to get used to the offense and what you're running. In terms of the decision-making, that was our biggest issue. Through the first 14 games of the year, we were dead last in turnovers. We were averaging like 21 a game, and it was the most in the league. And we were fortunate to have a really good analytics department that was connected to the Wizards. And so they would do some work for us, and they would tell you what kind of turnover that you were having. Were you having... Like isolation, selfish turnovers. Were you having bad passes? Were they offensive fouls? Things like that. And a lot of our turnovers in the beginning of the year were just players not making the right reads. They were trying to, but they were just inaccurate passes or the timing was just a little bit off. As a staff, that gave us a little bit of relief <laughs> because the type of turnovers that we were having were actually guys trying to make the plays that we wanted them to make. They just weren't quite getting it yet. Fast forward to the end of the year, we finished in the top 15. We were like 13th in the league, I think, in turnovers, which was like a, and we went from 21 to like 15 a game. And a lot of that just came from guys becoming better decision makers and understanding the reads and the timing of when to make certain passes and what plays were, were there. And then subbing, subbing the space, I think the spacing is everything, right? Like I know I didn't start it, but it really is important to have guys in the right spots to maximize the amount of space that you have on the floor. There were times where, we had turnovers because we had guys standing like five feet apart from each other, right? Or even our bigs, like we had, I love our bigs and they were really great in the post, but sometimes they would just stand on the block or something like, <laughs> you gotta get to the dunker. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you can't just stand there, get out of the way. And we always told our guys, we never want a defender to be able to guard more than one person, right? Like they can guard you and the ball or somebody else. We're in the wrong spots. 
So just making sure that the guys understood, I got to move so that my guy can't defend two people. It, I thought it really helped our guys. Coach, great answer there. I really interested in, so you started the decision-making and you mentioned how the analytics department came back to you and said that, you know, they're having these kinds of turnovers based off decision-making. And you mentioned how you guys went from 21 to 15 a game, which is, that's really significant. That's a lot that you're chopping off there. I'm just wondering about the conversations and the decisions that you and your staff made to help them fix it when you got that information and what you did in practice or film to get them better. So we would tell the guys, this is our turnover breakdown. So like from a game by game basis, when we were really struggling with it, we had a couple of games where we had 27, 28 plus turnovers. And we just showed them of the 28 turnovers, we'd have like 18 of them would be bad passes. Another five of them would be travel, right? And things like that. And so we would tell them like, these is what the numbers are. And then we would just watch. Them. We weren't bashing guys. We weren't coming down on them hard. It's like, okay, this is the read that you could have made or probably should have made. But also for the guys who didn't have the ball, this is how you are influencing this turnover, right? We talked about spacing because you're not in the corner. Our spacing is clogged up and there's less space to drive the ball. And for a team, I know we weren't a great shooting team, but it's probably more important to have good spacing for a team that can't shoot. <laughs> so we <laughs> so just packing the paint the whole time. And so a lot of it was just through film, to be honest. And then in practice, we would do a lot of work with three on O reads, four on O reads. And we had a period in our season because of COVID when the NBA was really struggling with COVID right around late December, early January, we were having practices with like seven or eight guys. And so for the guys that we still had, we worked a lot on three on three, two on two, four on O, three on O, driving kick reads. And it really helped our guys understand what they were going to see during the game. And then when some of our players that got caught up, when they came back, we continued to work on those things. And it really helped us kind of spur us to lower turnovers for the rest of the season. Coach, you also mentioned just getting better at the timing of the pass. Could you give us an example of, you know, a situation where the timing was bad or you improved the timing? So we want to take advantage of teams doing two-way closeouts. As you see him coming in, you got to be getting off the ball. That was probably the simplest example of it, but it's the same in like pick and roll reads. Like, especially when teams are tagging or late to tag on the pick and roll, most teams tag from the low man opposite of the ball. Right. So if we're setting a step up and we're going toward the baseline, if you see that guy pulling in late and you can't get the ball to the big rolling, you probably got to skip out to the corner because that guy, he can't go two ways. And so just helping guys read, read the defense and when they're pulling in, how they're pulled in and when you can actually go. I thought helped us. I hope that answers the question. Absolutely. And just to, to clarify, what is a two way closeout or, you know, they can't go two ways. What does that mean? If I'm a defender and I'm guarding a guy on the wing and I have to pull in, tap on the ball, and then fan back out to close out to my man, that's two directions, right? As opposed to just being there early and then on that pass, I can just close out one way, right? So instead of going two directions, I want to be going one direction if I'm defending. If I'm on offense and I see a guy who has to pull in and then get back out, I got to make that pass early as they're going in, knowing that it's going to take a long time for them to get back out to a shooter, to a cutter, or to whoever. Coach, you're off the start, sub, or sit hot seat. Thanks for playing. That was a lot of fun. That was a lot of fun. I kind of want to stay on the hot seat. Keep going. (laughs) This is a fun gig. You might have been the coolest customer we've had in a while uh, with this. So, (laughs) Well, Coach, we've got one more question for you before we let you go. But before we do... This has been awesome. Thank you for your time and all your thoughts today. This is wonderful, man. I'm I'm 
very grateful for you all to have me. Again, grateful for what you all do for the community. Man. It's, it's tremendous. Thank you very Thank much, you, Coach. Coach. Coach, our last question for you, and it's one we ask all the guests here. What's been the best investment that you've made in your career as a coach so far? The best investment that I've made, honestly, is reading books. I'm a big reader. I have tons of books on my shelf. And they're not just basketball books. They're all types. And I think just learning from people that I may not have access to in my personal kind of Rolodex, as you may say, has been really valuable for me. I love reading memoirs and learning about the life experiences of people. And it just helps relate to a lot of different people. You may not be able to talk to everybody and really relate to that, but maybe you read a book or read a story about somebody that went through that and you can understand a little bit better. I love reading and we talked about notes earlier, like I'm big into writing in the books and trying to remember what I read, but just, I feel like the more you read, the better you'll be as a coach and not just basketball. When I first started really reading, just probably my junior year or sophomore year in college, I read only basketball books. I was reading about coaching, things like that. I read about a lot of different stuff now. And right now I'm reading about Leonardo da Vinci and I'm reading about like the history of people working together in groups. Like I'm just reading all, you read all types of stuff. And the whole book you may not be able to use to help your coaching, but you can find one little tidbit, one little nugget. And I think it's worth it to help you be a better coach. Coach, great answer. I'd just love to ask you a quick follow-up. You're such a smart guy. Obviously you work hard and you're detail-oriented. I'd love to know what it is about basketball and coaching that's drawn you to the game. It's my way of helping people. I just love seeing the progression and love seeing the journey of people, whether that be the coaches, players, the front office. That's what I'm drawn toward. And basketball is the game I love, but I'm able to marry that love of the game to a passion for helping people. And honestly, that was probably one of the things I'm most grateful for over this past season is just to see the incremental growth of our players from the time we got them in November and October to April 7th when we lost in the playoffs. Our first scrimmage was against Delaware. We ended up losing in the finals and we played probably like six or seven scrimmages and lost every single scrimmage. Like we got blasted. And to go from that to being one game away from the Eastern Conference Finals and two games away from the finals and have five guys get called up, that was cool. And so just being able to help people along their path and being a small part of that is fulfilling. It really is. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Please make sure to visit slappingglass.com for more information on the free newsletter, Slapping Glass Plus, and much more. Have a great week coaching, and we'll see you next time on Slapping Glass. Oh, do we have a name yet for this thing? I have like slapping backboard. <laughs> slapping glass. <laughs> slapping glass. That's kind of funny. I like that. Let's roll. <laughs> slapping glass. <laughs>